You're listening to Veracity Radio. James E. is a former U.S. Army chaplain who was subject to arrest, confinement, and charges of sedition, aiding the enemy, spying, espionage, and failure to obey a general order. The charges were later reduced and then dropped, but it raised the question about the U.S. attitude towards its own loyal service members who were also Muslim and whether the U.S. was capable of understanding a conflict it was in. Since his honorable discharge from the military, he has been a critic of the U.S. treatment of detainees, the treatment of the Quran by the U.S. military, and the treatment of service members who are Muslim. I spoke with Captain Yi about his experiences and his role in a panel discussion on torture for the Torture Awareness Month in Minnesota. We're joined here by James Yee. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And so, uh, first off, let's talk a little bit about what's happening this Sunday, and then uh, we're going to go into some background. You have uh, an event this Sunday in uh, Minnesota. Can you tell us about that panel? Uh, yeah, well, um, I've been invited uh, by a group called Tackling Torture from the Top. And as we know, June is, is anti-torture month. And I've been for the last two, three years publicly speaking out against torture, mainly because of my my role as the Muslim chaplain down in Guantanamo Bay, where I, I, I saw and witnessed and was aware of uh, a tremendous amount of abuse that occurred to prisoners held in U.S. custody at this prison camp. Let's go back a little bit. Let's, let's introduce the audience to who you are, in case they aren't we're following the, um, the events of the last several years. You were um, born and raised in New Jersey, and you were born to a Lutheran family. Um, was your family a, a much of a practicing family as far as religion? Uh, well, I, I was born in Naperville, Illinois. Okay. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, I'm sorry, the other way around. Go ahead. Uh, uh, my mom raised uh, all, all of uh, uh, the kids in my family Lutheran, Lutheran being one of the more liturgical Protestant denominations. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to church every Sunday as youngsters. We went to Sunday school, and uh, we all, at some point in our youth, participated in the, the church youth group activities, and were all confirmed in the eighth grade uh, according to Lutheran doctrine. And so, how did they? How did you make the progression from there to to looking into Islam? Uh, well, when I graduated West Point, I uh, found myself one day in what you might call interfaith dialogue and. Really, it was just a discussion with another college student about uh, on each individual beliefs, and I was Christian. Uh, this person was studying Islam and asked me what I thought about, you know, just the basic idea of believing in one God without having to believe in this idea of the Trinity. And actually, that was something I rejected outright because I was Christian and was brought up and raised uh, with the belief of the, the Trinity. But I was challenged, and when I was asked, you know, do I know anything about Islam? And when I said no, uh, the question was, how could I judge something if I didn't know anything about it? And that made sense. So I I went on my own, started reading about Islam, uh, and I became intrigued by discovering that most of what Muslims believe were things that I myself as a Christian already believed. And... Uh, I saw the 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 vast uh, commonality between Islam and Christianity, and when I converted to Islam, for me it was a a reconfirmation of my monotheistic faith 
in one God. So in a way, it didn't feel like you had extended uh, too far beyond your original roots. You know, you know what? When I first became Muslim, it, to me, it wasn't any major life-changing event. Uh, again, it was for me, it was just a reconfirmation of that belief in one God. But something that did very much inspire me not long after that was my first uh, journey to Mecca when I was deployed as a U.S. soldier in the aftermath of the first Gulf War to Saudi Arabia. And I had the opportunity to go to Mecca uh, only a few months after uh, I converted to Islam, maybe six months or so after I converted to Islam. Uh, I was very, a, a very much a new convert, and I was inspired by really seeing the vast display of diversity I guess you can say it was a Malcolm X-like type experience right, for me. Right, I was just thinking of Malcolm. When did you enlist in the uh, military? Uh, well, I graduated from West Point, okay. the United States so Military not- Academy, in 1990. I entered the academy in 1986, in, in, in July of 86. So that's when I actually first stepped into the military. And what was your role before uh, Guantanamo? In my early career, I was an air defense artillery officer, a Patriot Missiles Fire Control Officer. Mm-hmm. And I would leave active duty in the mid uh, in the early nineties. In uh, June of ninety three, mm-hmm. was put into the inactive reserves, and then I would come back on active duty in January of two thousand one as a Muslim chaplain. One of the things that I saw as a new convert to Islam, uh, serving in Saudi Arabia in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, was the rapid increase, the rapid increase of Muslim personnel within the ranks of our U.S. military. The first Gulf War brought uh, a couple thousand Muslim converts. Uh, I'd heard maybe five or seven thousand U.S. soldiers converted to Islam as a result of serving uh, in the region in the, during the first Gulf War. But we didn't have a single Muslim chaplain during that time. And so I, I actually had hoped that and one day maybe I would be the first. Hey, what do you think the appeal was that would increase the enlistment role? During the first Gulf War, under the first George Bush, Bush mm-hmm. uh, father, there was actually a, a genuine coalition of forces fighting to oust Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi troops from Kuwait. Okay. You had several Muslim nations fighting alongside uh, a U.S. forces very different from the Iraqi conflict that we see today. Right. You don't have a single Muslim nation that supports U.S. military action uh, in Iraq today. And there's a stark contrast. Back then, you had uh, you had much more of an open dialogue between Muslims, uh, Muslims from other nations and armies, right. than today, where we see more of a hostility towards Islam. And in that time, in the 90s, we also had the um, the events with uh, Bosnia. What are your thoughts on that period? Well, yeah, that happened mostly under the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I myself didn't take part uh, directly in, in any of the, um, the Bosnian uh, conflict. Uh, I do know a friend of mine who is also a Muslim chaplain in the U.S. Army. He worked with the refugees who were housed at uh, Fort Dix in New Jersey. Right. Well, there was, I know in the case of, uh, for instance, the testimony from the man we call Abu Zubaydah, for instance, he 
He was one of the many people who referred to the U.S. campaign in Bosnia as a favorable thing amongst Muslims because we had, uh, in fact, defended the Muslims who were becoming under attack. So I was curious how that was received. Um, so let's let's move forward to an area that obviously where the world began to change. Now, you came back, you said, in uh, January 2001? January 2001, I reentered the, the ranks of active duty as a Muslim chaplain, correct? Okay, and since September 11th had not happened yet, what what uh, what was it about uh, January 2001 that brought you back in? Uh, I had left the military in 93, had gone on and pursued some individual studies of Islam, uh, went to learn a little bit of the cl- classical Arabic language so I can recite the Quran in its original form. Uh, and, and then I would re- uh, meet up again years later in 99, uh, late 2000, or early 2000, with a, a, a retired Marine who I had known, a Muslim uh, Marine, and he would become the ecclesiastical endorser for Muslim chaplains, and then he 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 recruited me back in in the in in the army uh, to be one of the first Muslim chaplains. I would come back on active duty then, that January two thousand one. Well, obviously, later in that year, the world changed dramatically. Your role would change, obviously, shortly after. So. If you came back in in January 2001, can you, from your angle, tell us how things uh, began to uh, change in your role after September 11, 2001, between there and if you tell us when you first wound up going to Guantanamo Bay? Right. Well, immediately following 9-11, I was approached by my battalion commander to educate our troops about Islam and the Muslim culture. Okay. Uh, this uh, this was done as a result of some personnel within our unit who were questioning the loyalty of a handful of Muslims that we had uh, after 9-11. Okay. And so my commander wanted to address this immediately and asked if I would uh, give a presentation to our entire unit about Islam and, and the Muslim culture. And I answered the many questions that soldiers had about about Islam. And many of them came away with a better understanding. And the next thing I, I knew it, uh, the next thing you find is, is every commander on the base was then requesting my, my uh, assistance to educate their troops. And I became well-known on the base, on the installation. Uh, I became a point person for media requests regarding uh, Islam and Muslims in, in the U.S. military. Uh, and uh, I began to receive uh, enormous recognition from the highest levels of the Pentagon and, and the State Department. And I believe it was this recognition that landed me the, the position in Guantanamo Bay, that I was handpicked to, to serve as the Muslim chaplain for this now infamous prison camp uh, on the island of Cuba. And when did you first arrive uh, in Guantanamo Bay? I got to Guantanamo Bay in November of 2002, just as... Uh, Major General Jeffrey Miller took over the command. Okay. Uh, Major General Jeffrey Miller now is known for the one who brought the the harsh interrogation practices of Guantanamo to Abu Ghraib, right. leading to this this uh, the the, hor- the horrendous uh, abuse and humiliation of of prisoners in, in Iraq. So when you arrived at Gitmo, uh, Jeffrey Miller was in charge already. He took command virtually the, the day that I arrived there. Do you remember who was in charge before him? Uh, yeah, you had um, uh, General Dunleavy. Okay. 
uh, was, was a two-star, was heading up the uh, intelligence operation. Uh, and then you had another general, uh, a marine general, like, uh, who was there at the very early start. And then there was another general also who was from part of the Rhode Island National Guard. Okay. So Jeffrey, so Jeffrey Miller, though, basically um, arrived at the same timing as you. How did the uh, the command hold your your position once uh, they started filling the detention camp up? Before this allegation of documents and such, what was the treatment and the dialogue between you and the command on base at the time? Well, I was the chaplain assigned to the prison camp, and you know I would learn that my role was to be an advisor on religion. Okay how the religious practices of these Muslim prisoners affected the detention operation, Mm -hmm. as well as being a chaplain to the prisoners. And in that role as a chaplain, I had uh, pretty much unfettered access, unescorted access and authorization to the prison cell blocks and met with prisoners on a daily basis trying to address their, their concerns. After um, about a year, I guess it would be, say, if you were there in November 2002, just, just under a year on September 10th, you were arrested uh, as you were coming into Jacksonville, Florida, the um, can you tell us the circumstances of that arrest, and then um, le- if you lay out what factually is correct about that, and um, and what is factually disputed about that? In other words, what did the what was uh, what were you accused of? How much of that is uh, true, and then how much of that is uh, simply manufactured? Well, basically what happened was after serving 10 months in Guantanamo, after receiving awards, after receiving a stellar officer evaluation report, I received R&R, rest relaxation. I got two weeks off to go home, see my family, knowing that after two weeks, I would have to return back to Guantanamo, finish two more months, uh, and that would be a full year of, 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 of duty at Guantanamo. Okay. I got on a plane from Guantanamo to Florida, and I had a connecting flight from Jacksonville, Florida, to Seattle, but I never made that connecting flight as I was stopped by immigration officers, uh, customs officials who searched my bags, and they would make these spurious claims that I was carrying what they called suspicious documents. In an instant, there were intelligence officers on the scene, counterintelligence, uh, NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigators, FBI was there, and they would uh, then say that I was uh, carrying classified documents. They got an arrest warrant. They would throw me in prison, and next thing I I know, uh, I'm being accused of being this terrorist spy. They wanted to levy charges of espionage, spying, aiding the enemy. (laughs) And, And they would even threaten me with the death penalty. Is is there any of that that's true? Did you have information that was there that uh, simply wasn't classified, or what? What was the uh, what points of that were intersected with truth, and then just maybe overblown, or or is there any truth to that? Well, for one, I'm not a terrorist spy like they okay. portray and characterize <laughs> me as. Uh, I'm a patriotic American, a graduate of West Point, and I'm from a family that is deeply rooted that is deeply rooted in the military. Uh-huh. You know, my younger brother, my younger brother is a West Point graduate uh, who just served his second uh, reserve tour in in the Middle East. 
Right. Uh, my other brother is an active-duty Army physician uh, uh, serving Fort Hood in Texas. Mm-hmm. And my father, who is also a U.S.-born uh, Chinese-American citizen, uh, served in the Army when he was drafted during World War II. Uh, so that's the first uh, the first truth, okay. is that I'm not a terrorist spy, but yet, but instead, I'm, I, I, but actually, I'm a, a patriotic American. Okay. Uh, this whole idea about what information was I carrying, most of what I had was research that I was doing for my master's degree course uh, on the Middle East. I was enrolled at the time in a, in a master's program of international relations, and uh, while I was down at Guantanamo, I was doing research to complete a, a final project uh, for that for that course. Uh, I've since completed that that program, and, and now I do have a master's in international relations. But a lot of what drew, but a lot of what drew some suspicions was what was all this information about the Middle East. FBI agents would question me about information about uh, the Syrian president, who was the topic of my, my research paper. Um, a lot of uh, claims were made later that I, that I had sensitive information that couldn't be disclosed, and therefore that's why the charges were dropped and never went to trial. So the that's... only information I think that is relevant that I had, which uh, they consider sensitive, is uh, my own personal documentation of specific abuses mm-hmm. that occurred in Guantanamo to prisoners. And the military would consider that sensitive because they want to cover that stuff up. Right. They want to cover up the fact that prisoners were subjected to uh, cruel and human and degrading treatment, and, uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, gross, gross uh, violations of, of of integrity. If you were arrested on September 10th and you were basically, the, the charges were dropped, and I'm looking at the date, actually, it's a very ironic date, March 19th, which is one year after the head strike on uh, Iraq. But um, that's, a, that's a fairly short period of time for them to uh, to go from really ratcheting it up against you to dropping charges. That's a, it may seem a long time to you at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, there, there was a, they finally dropped the charges in um, March 19th, uh, 2004. I think it was pretty clear to everyone, uh, even w- within within the highest ranks of the military, uh, in the government, that you know I was not this terrorist spy like I was being characterized by the by the, by the media, uh, based on information that was being leaked to them from the military. Uh, but questions started being asked when I was thrown in prison. Right. Like, who is this, you know, Captain James E.? And when people started doing their research and looking up my profile online and seeing, you know, that I, you know, I had, you know, uh, a flawless military record, that I was someone who, after 9-11, uh, publicly stated that those who carried out the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon had to be brought to justice, mm-hmm. whether they were Muslim or whether they weren't Muslim. Uh, so when people, uh, those in the media started researching who I was, it just didn't make sense. And, you know, people in, in Congress got very concerned about, you know, my case. And when I, when the charges were dropped, uh, several members of Congress, specifically uh, those who were 
on the the House Armed Service Committee as well as in, in on the Senate Armed Service Committee uh, rendered so, uh, support to me and 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 demanded from uh, Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense at the time, as well as from the Inspector General of the Department of Defense to 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 answer questions as to why was I treated in, in, in this manner and, and how did this all happen? Now, this wasn't the end of uh, pressure on you, though. Um, after this event, um, did you receive more uh, harassment and or accusations or uh, pressure? Well, I was cleared of every accusation, every charge that was levied against me. I was sent back, reinstated as a chaplain to serve our soldiers. And it wasn't long before I found that I was still under scrutiny. I was... Uh, uh, essentially gagged. I was warned uh, as a military officer not to speak out about how I was treated and not to say anything critical of the Department of the Army or the Department of the, the Defense, and that if I did, I would be uh, sitting back in a prison cell. Uh, I didn't like how I was being treated even after I was cleared. So I attended my resignation. I received an honorable discharge in January of 2005. And when I separated, I received a second U.S. Army Commendation Medal for exceptionally meritorious service. And as soon as I got out of the military, I went right to work and decided that I would document my entire experience uh, in the military in Guantanamo Bay and expose much of what really went on inside this, this prison camp. Now, I hope you'll send me a copy of your book. I'd love to read it so we can talk further about it. But this resulted in the book you published called God in Country, Faith and Patriotism Under Fire. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you cover in your book? Oh, well, yeah, I opened, the, the, this, this, the, my, I opened my, my experience with you know, the day I was arrested uh, from Guantanamo Bay. I briefly talk about a, a little bit of my, my uh, personal biography. Mm-hmm. Being born in America to a Chinese American family, growing up uh, in the United States, having the all-American childhood, uh, going to West Point, graduating from the academy, and then my journey to Islam, how I converted, and then going on to become a Muslim chaplain, and then my story rolls into the attacks of 9/11 and 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 how I was then placed in that assignment, Guantanamo Bay, and. Uh, my experience in Guantanamo and, and working with prisoners and uh, trying to fight against the, the torture and abuse that was that was uh, being handed down, uh, perhaps at the, the encouragement of top-level uh, White House personnel during that time. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about Jeffrey Miller. As you pointed out, he was in charge of the Abu Ghraib prison at the timing of uh, the abuses, and then his uh, he had um, his role at Guantanamo. Could you characterize his um, his overall um, attitude towards the detainees, and how did that trickle through the ranks? General Miller was a very uh, overbearing commander. In in my view, he had a lot of hostility towards Muslims. What was uh, what I found very astounding was that in Guantanamo Bay, there was allowance for dietary religious accommodation to the Muslim prisoners. Uh, all of the meals that were served were prepared according to uh, Muslim 
Islamic dietary guidelines. All the meat was properly slaughtered, known as halal, which is a concept similar to kosher in the Jewish faith. This was allowed and permitted by the commander for the Muslim prisoners. But when Muslim military service personnel, when U.S. citizens, U.S. Muslims who were serving the U.S. Army, requested religious accommodation for dietary uh, dietary accommodation, uh, Major General Jeffrey Miller uh, denied those requests. Uh, these requests were made with my support, with uh, support of U.S. Army regulations, which allows for religious accommodations. Uh, I was astounded that Major Miller would deny and, and not support the troops in something like this, uh, even when the prisoners uh, had this accommodation. Uh, to me, that's an indication of, of how he... he uh, how he viewed Muslims and how he treated Muslims, and that perhaps he, he only allowed it for the prisoners because it, it might have been a, a good PR move for for the command. In our discussions over the past uh, few weeks with other uh, former military um, personnel, including Integrator Matthew Alexander, including uh, SEER Instructor Malcolm Nance, we have discussed the strategic need to be very clear about the Islamic culture and to, to be able to tell the difference between people who are Muslim and people who are actually perverting Islam for their own, as Malcolm refers to, cultish gains. Um, from your perspective, um, do you think that the United States has begun, at least the military side, do you think they've begun to finally tune in to the reality that you know, launching a war on a, mil- a billion-plus Muslims is strategically ignorant um, and that they really need to focus, um, one, on a legitimate target, and two, they need to uh, reform the American uh, dialogue about the conflict? Uh, or do you, do you see any really changes about the same? Well, with the new administration, with the Obama administration, uh, I have seen some positive uh, moves on the part of the president to improve outreach to the Muslim world. Uh, I mean, when he first gave his, when 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 President Obama gave his first televised public interview, it was to an uh, an Arab satellite channel known as Al Arabiya. He gave a, a major historic speech last year in in in, in Cairo. Uh, he's brought some prominent Muslims. American Muslims into his his inner circle, his cabinet. He recently appointed uh, uh, a well-known American Muslim to uh, as the envoy to the, the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference. Uh, so he has done a lot of outreach, but in terms of hard actions to uh, make any changes in 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 U.S. foreign policy, uh, we have yet to see it. I mean, he promised to close Guantanamo. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, he, you know, he promised to uh, uh, bring the troops home. We haven't seen that yet, uh, but instead he's surged Afghanistan. Uh, uh, you know, these things, uh, I think, uh, are, are also working to, to, to question whether or not President Obama is, uh, has really made significant changes with regard to 
you know, our relations with the Muslim world. And and I think many, many people around the world, many in the Muslim world have, have uh, already uh, written Obama office as, as someone who, ha- who hasn't made the changes that he's promised. In light of the changes we just saw today with the uh, resignation of Stanley McChrystal, um, it, it makes us really take a look at the inner circle, uh, the top command. And my one, I have been wondering for a long time, for the, I should say for the last maybe year or so since uh, I began to think that you know, Obama was not going to fulfill some of these promises. Um, do you think there's a chance, just from your vantage point, I know this is kind of uh, guessing and on both of our behalf, but do you think there's a, a, a vantage point where these these top brass wind up in the White House for a consultation, Obama may want to do something, and then just by virtue of the amount of brass standing in front of him, as one person said, more brass than uh, uh, than the best college bands, uh, do you think he basically – uh, gets put in a position where he cannot assert a backbone position where he says, this is where we're going to go. Do you think those men stand, sit him down and say, look, you know, I'm big to differ with you, Mr. President, but we really need to keep this open. Give us more time. How, how do you think that works? For, I mean, from, from your vantage point, how do you think that that happens at the top? You know, well, one of the things that I, I, I'm looking at right now with this uh, whole General McChrystal situation is, uh, where does this, fall within the big picture. Uh, I think what has just happened with, with General McChrystal and him publicly uh, ridiculing people in the White House and his staff criticizing, you know, the president, the commander-in-chief, to me, this is an indication that leadership within our U.S. military has really eroded. Uh, I mean, it's... I mean, every military officer goes through... Uh, military science classes and, and and leadership training, and we understand that there's a civilian control of the military, uh, uh, and we, as military officers, know that okay. While we we carry out the mission, uh, we still fall sub, uh, subordinate to uh, civilian leadership. That's the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense, uh, President. And to see uh, a high-ranking general basically, uh, you know, go against that whole idea, that, you know, that that concept, uh, and and really show the world that, you know, he believes that he is someone... uh, who he thinks should be running the military, uh, in my view, is, is an indication that our, our top leadership in the military today has, has deteriorated. I think the previous administration did a very, very good job of, of getting rid of those military leaders who were top-notch. You know, people like General Shinseki, for example, who chief staff of the army was was railroaded out by by Rumsfeld and, and his crew. Uh, uh, it, it was nice to see that the general was was, was given a secretary cabinet position as, as secretary of veterans affairs under the Obama administration. But I think the previous administration did a pretty good job of of 
getting rid of, of those generals, those top brass who, who really knew what they were doing. Anthony Zinni comes to mind also. you have thoughts on Anthony Zinni, General Zinni? Uh, no, no particular comments on Okay. On, He's been very critical uh, of the uh, administration, the previous administration. Basically, anyone who was 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 rendering sincere advice that you know we now can look back and say, hey, that most of that advice was good advice, uh, even though it was critical of what President Bush or, or Vice President Cheney or Rumsfeld what they wanted. Uh, those people were all railroaded out. One of the things that uh, we will explore in our show in uh, in the coming weeks will be discussion of um, some of these hi- hierarchical uh, principles, and we will be discussing uh, Master Sun Tzu's uh, teachings about retaining order from the top down, but especially about the role of the civilian order and the role of the military order and how they intersect. Uh, in in the case of the Bush administration, as a as, as an example, um, I know that Master Sun Tzu would refer to um, uh, basically lazy and frivolous civilian leadership throwing military around uh, to do different things, at which point basically the morale falls dramatically short because, of course, the military has no uh, uh, effective uh, goal in mind. They're just being expended. So that's one of the things we saw under the Bush administration, um, and I think we should be you know, looking at in the future. I want to talk specifically about a few, you know, not necessarily detainees by name, but just classes of detainees. And now that we see some of the prosecutions, uh, we're going to see maybe 30-something folks, I believe. Is that the number you've heard? Uh, have you been following that? Yeah, something like that. Um, 30-ish or so? You know, I, I've been a little bit disappointed that uh, President Obama has seemingly uh, went back to using the military commissions that were crafted under the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. He had promised to essentially scrap the military commissions and express his support that, you know, our our constitution and federal courts are more than adequate to try terror suspects or crimes of terrorism. Uh, I'm, I'm not someone who supports the, the military commissions uh, whatsoever. Do you think there's? Can you give us an example where you think military commissions, just so we can understand where the the, the line might be? Can you give us an example where you believe military commissions uh, are appropriate? Not necessarily with any particular uh, scenario we have now, but just in uh, in the uh, ideal world, what what would the perfect reason for using a military commission be? Uh, right now, there's no need for them. Okay. Uh, I mean, for for uh, military commissions are essentially set up. To have a, a lower legal standard to be able to convict someone of a war crime. Okay. Uh, to me, I think that hurts the reputation of, of of the United States as a country that follows the rule of law. Uh, there are there are things within the military commission system that are not allowable, that are not acceptable in any fair, open, just court here in the United States. I mean, things like like hearsay, things like Evidence being being gained through uh, coercive or torture is, is could be you know could be permitted in some of these in these military commissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no real full uh, process to appeal. Uh, uh, you can only appeal the the military commission's process and, and not the, 
the conviction itself, things like this, from my understanding. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm in no way a military law expert, but... But you have a sense of honor and code that, that at least as a uh, soldier, would uh, tell you this is this is maybe the appropriate timing for such an event, and, and the rest of the time, no. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, and to me, just in general, military law, I mean, is very biased. In favor of the even military. Under, even under the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which right. is set up to, to, to put U.S. service members on trial if they were to commit a crime, because the juries are, are military members themselves. Uh, um, I mean, a terror suspect who's put in, you know, in front of a military jury is, is almost assured to, to be convicted just because of the bias. Uh, one of the things that I've seen uh, in, in in keeping an eye on on soldiers who have committed atrocities uh, in the combat zone uh, that many of their colleagues acquit them uh, of of you know uh, something you know even a potential execution type style uh, murder of a civilian. Uh, their colleagues in the military you know are very ready to acquit someone of. Of of something which is it just which is just a gross crime because uh, because of the bias in the military so it works right way. Well, one of the things we'd like to talk about in the future also we're going to bring people on to talk about the the um, the consequences of positive bias. Um, in the case of the, for instance the BP disaster, now I get frequent emails uh, from people in the oil industry that try to explain their industry to me as if that's going to change my not in the industry view. <laughs> Uh, same thing with the military. Whenever I'm looking at the uh, a CSRT on a um, detainee, and I look at the uh, the language being used with them, um, it's a very assumptive, already charged language. It's already laden with um, accusations in the words themselves. So let's look a little bit uh, at the the treatment of the detainees and a few kind of overarching themes. Uh, number one, I having read. Some of the CSRTs and and followed not as well as someone like Andy Worthington, but I've looked into some of their cases. It strikes me that there were a few people who said basically, "Yes, I was involved in this. I did this. I'm a I'm a warrior. You know, tough. Um, American can go to hell." And um, I don't necessarily see a crime against the U.S. They're just basically not interested in playing our ball. Then next to them will be someone who. Uh, claims to have come from Yemen to Afghanistan on um, on uh, missionary work. Now, I want to uh, stop there for a moment because um, that was a common theme, actually, in many of the first CSRTs I read, for instance, in what we call the Dirty 30, the first uh, 30 uh, detainees apprehended um, on December fifteenth, two 2001, brought there. Many of them had the same story that they were missionaries coming from Yemen, uh, going to Afghanistan, and the people interviewing them – completely talked with disbelief, like how could you be a missionary going to Yemen? Now, as a person growing up in a Judeo-Christian society, I know plenty of Christian missionaries that have gone to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, no big deal. So I don't know why it would strike anyone unless they had a prejudice in the conversation to think that a Muslim wouldn't be there uh, acting as a um, uh, missionary for Islam, especially since no one in the area will be speaking Arabic and you would probably want someone who's a native Arabic speaker to be teaching you. So, knowing a little bit of these nuances, can you tell us without you know, bring, you know betraying a confidence that was given you uh, in your role? Can you tell us um, 
a little bit about the dialogues you may have had with uh, some of the prisoners. And did you run across guys that even from where you were sitting, you know, this guy, yeah, he yeah, he probably did something pretty bad. And then you probably talked to someone else who clearly was innocent and shouldn't be there in the first place. Can you Can you share a view on that a little bit with us? Uh, I would say that the vast, vast majority of the prisoners in Guantanamo uh, were innocent of any crimes. Right. I, I would say that when I was in Guantanamo in November of 2002 through September of 2003, there wasn't a single person in Guantanamo being held that could be in any way directly tied to 9-11. That just was not possible. And I say that because if our government had captured anyone who they suspected of being involved with 9-11, they weren't brought to Guantanamo. They were black sided. They were put in a CIA black site. Right. So the people in Guantanamo had nothing to do with 9-11. I will also say that if you didn't hate America before you were in Guantanamo, after Guantanamo, you surely hate America now because of the way they were treated, uh, how they were abused. And many, I, I would say many of the prisoners, you know, had, had you know, no, no necessarily negative uh, uh, attitudes towards America, but after being wrongfully thrown in prison and tortured and abused, you know, they came out, you know, hating America. Did you appeal to anyone in that position? Uh, did they, if they shared that with you, was there any part of you that just tried to appeal beyond those lines and just say, you know, human to human, you know, I'm sorry, or, or where, what, what would what would that do to you? I mean, for me, I mean, I think one of the challenges I had was was dialoguing with some of the prisoners who uh, found it difficult for uh, another Muslim who would be willing to serve in the U.S. military, knowing that. A, a great part of U.S. military action is, is in Muslim countries and against Muslim nations. Mm-hmm. That was pretty challenging, dialoguing with prisoners on, on that idea. And do you think it would be fair to say, at least, uh, if, you ke- if you kept the parameters to the last eight years, in other words, if you stopped, which I don't really want to do, but if you stopped in January 20th last year, in the Bush administration alone, would you say it was fair if someone said the United States was uh, trying to launch an attack on Islam? Would you say there's it, if you could even quantify a percentage of that truth into the total campaign, would you say there's a little bit of truth in that? Uh, uh, I'm not sure what you're asking here. Okay. Um, if I look at the, the rhetoric from the elected officials and if I look at some of the um, consequential rhetoric that we find in soldiers – I could easily make a case that America was going against uh, Islam itself. And the reason why I would be able to make that is that I can tune in nightly to Fox News. I can tune into uh, David Horowitz. I can listen to uh, uh, people like, you know, Joe Lieberman. And, and they have like one view, it seems like, if you listen to them long enough, that basically we're at war with Islam. And that narrative can be used overseas very easily. So it seems to me it would be a fair characterization that at least in the last eight years that there is some truth to saying that the U.S. was at war with Islam. That might not have been the right choice to go to war with Islam, but would you say there's any truth to that or am I just uh, heavy-handing that? Well, I would say that certainly there are many talking heads. There are many people who 
spew this idea that there's this clash of civilizations between the West and Islam, and uh, you want to make this case that you know that uh, you know the, the Western civilization is at war with Islamic civilization. Uh, but in, in my view, there there's no need for any conflict. I mean, I'm an American and I'm a Muslim, and you know, my identity of, of my American identity and my Muslim identity actually complement uh, and supplement each other. Right. The values that you find embodied in the Quran are essentially the same values you find embodied in the U.S. Constitution. I mean, we're talking about uh, religious freedom, uh, equality justice, uh, tolerance, you know, these types of things. But there are people who are looking to profit uh, from war, and at this particular time, people want to uh, spew this, this type of uh, hatred towards this Islam in order to ratchet up more and more military conflict, military action against uh, Muslim nations. Um. In our in our uh, conversation two weeks ago, Malcolm Nance and I talked about his um, his book, an end to Al Qaeda, and he basically says, as part of what he calls Operation Circuit Breaker, that you have to really root out these. Um, he didn't use the word apostates, but I will use the word apostates. You have to root these people out who really have nothing to do with Islam in the end. If you actually assess the uh, made up theology, um, first off, would you agree with his assessment that uh, the extremist factions going under the name al-Qaeda, or at least assigned the name al-Qaeda, would you say that those uh, those groups are not, in fact, Islamic? They're just kind of co-opting the um, the name of the religion? Well, uh, every religion has people who go outside the bounds of, of, of what is acceptable. Right. And there are, there are many, many groups today uh, that are, are, Doing things which are very un-Islamic, uh, you know, and killing civilians is something that is not acceptable in Islam. So, would a strat, would a proper strategy, and he's not the only one. There was also a man who is a um, a reformed. I, I forget his name, but I caught him. Uh, there was a sixty minutes piece called the narrative, and he basically had the same premise, which is that there is a narrative in the Islamic world. Uh, that America is at war with Islam, and that this is not really true. That it, in fact, America is at war with a isolated set of extremists who cloak themselves in Islam, and that it's very important for Muslims to know the difference, uh, also, and um, to espouse the difference and not be caught up in that. Uh, would you say that's a legitimate um, plan uh, to to um, clarify what is, um, for lack of a better word, orthodox um, Islam? In order well, to there are- go ahead. I, I would still say that there is still a lot of of, of bigotry against Islam. Sure. You might not necessarily call that war, but even within our own society, you find people discriminating against people because they are Muslim. And that's wrong. Right. Uh, you know, when when people when Muslims are denied jobs, when they're denied housing, when they're denied a being mosque treated in New equally, York, a when mosque they're, in Tennessee. Yeah, well, yeah, when their when their places of worships are uh, being vandalized and firebombed, uh, you know, you don't have to call it a war, but this is bigotry, and right. there is a there are people who who are very un- who harbor 
very un-American attitudes when they when they do. I mean, this is not a, this is not what America is about. America, uh, American values uh, accepts people of all different races, of all different religions, uh, faiths, and creeds. You're listening to Veracity Radio. We're spending time here with Captain James Yee. And I want to ask a little bit about the follow-up to your case and where things stand now. First off, um, you have a website, justiceforye.com. And um, you have do you have ongoing legal expenses due to your um, interaction with the government at the time? Well, at this time, I, I don't have any ongoing legal expenses. I've received an enormous amount of, of support, Good. donations from, you know, good-hearted Americans within the Muslim community, within the Asian-American community, within the communities of conscience. Uh, all across the country, and my legal expenses to, uh, to date now have, have been paid off. And uh, tell us about uh, ongoing um, uh, campaigns, things that you really want to see uh, in very focused fashion. What are some tangible goals we would like to see uh, related to these topics of torture, Guantanamo, uh, the administration? Uh, can you name a, a few perceivable goals? Uh, yeah, I would love to see Guantanamo closed, uh, not tomorrow, but today. Uh, you know, Colin Powell himself said that if it was up to him, you know, he wouldn't close Guantanamo tomorrow. He would close it this afternoon. Uh, I would like to see Guantanamo closed, and I hope President Obama will do that. Uh, I also would like to see uh, the, the military commissions scrapped, that people who are going to be tried by the U.S. government for terrorist crimes be tried in a federal court. And the federal courts have standed, have stood you know the the test of of of, of time with regard to you know, even crimes of terrorism. I mean, we've had several several trials involving terrorism that mm-hmm. have been very successful. So, I would like to see the military commission scrapped. Uh, I would like uh, to see a continued uh, education of of the American people and the people of the West uh, of Islam and the Muslim culture in hopes that uh, uh, one day that uh, Muslims will will be seen as uh, people who have made huge you know, contributions not only to our country but to, to history and that uh, Islam has a, a lot to offer our nation uh, with regard to good. And what about prosecution from uh, for the, from this from the lowest level uh, soldiers who were simply guards all the way up to let's say the vice president of the United States at the time and the president of the, at the time? What do you think would be the use of um, formal prosecutions for these officials, especially the higher up officials? Sure, if, if prosecutions are warranted, sure they 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 must be carried out. Uh, but before we get to prosecutions. Sure, we should we should investigate. We should look at uh, exactly what has been done. Have crimes been committed? Have uh, laws been violated? Um, that should be investigated. And you know, if if we have the information that that points to this occurrence, sure, that people need to be prosecuted. To date, in Gu- uh, to date, no one really has been held account- accountable for. For Guantanamo and the abuses that have occurred in Guantanamo, and even at the low level, have we had convictions of low-level um, guards? No, I don't know. Of, even at the lower level, 
anyone really been being held accountable for for gross abuses at Guantanamo. But are you aware of of uh, at least events that should have resulted in such? I believe we need to look a lot closer at, at what has gone on and 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 do uh, more independent investigations. Right, internal investigations seem to uh, clear themselves of any wrongdoing. Uh, right. Even Major General Jeffrey Miller was recommended by U.S. Southern Command for reprimand, but yet okay. the U.S. but yet the U.S. Uh, Army Inspector General decided that it did, he, you know, uh, punishment wasn't warranted. I know you weren't there at the time, but in uh, around June of 2006, three detainees supposedly killed themselves as what was cynically described as asymmetric warfare. Have you looked at that case, and and have you have you um, read the follow up that uh, Scott Horton did with a uh, sergeant who was on on site? Oh uh, yeah, I did read the article in Harper's Magazine, and actually spoke. I've spoken directly to that particular uh, sergeant. Oh okay. That that, that I mean, it, it's it's very interesting. Uh, you know the facts of this case, and uh, it's it's very possible that something. Uh, much more evil has has been covered up. Mm-hmm. I think we, we we need to look harder at, at really what 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 happened to those individuals who supposedly committed suicide. And again, that would be speculation, but uh, at least I would say qualified speculation, especially if you've personally spoken with the sergeant and you've uh, you've worked on site. So you have a sense, at least, of the uh, the prisoners' mindsets. Does it make sense to you that three uh, three Muslims would commit suicide in there like that? I will tell you that many of the prisoners uh, did mentally deteriorate from being caged like animals inside Guantanamo. Sure. There was a separate ward, you might call it, a prison cell block that was converted into a a, a psych ward. When I was in Guantanamo, there was a 17-person psychiatric team because of the... the, of the mental deterioration that occurred to prisoners from being, you know, caged up Guantanamo and subjected to enormous amount of abuse. So uh, suicide is something that was a, a huge, you know, problem in Guantanamo. There were hundreds of suicide attempts that occurred when I was there. Okay. One of the things that, one of the things the military tried to do in covering that up was was change the terminology and, and refer to these incidences as as individual self-harm attempts. So when a journalist might ask, you know, how many suicide attempts, you know, they had a very, very small number that they would quote because they classified most of these suicide attempts as as self-harm. You know, this is, uh, to me, a a spin that they put on in order to cover up reality. There are very few organizations who can pop out a euphemism faster than the U.S. military. It's possible that, you know, prisoners did commit suicide, but at the same time, when we look at some of the, the facts of the, this particular incident, it's, it's also possible to question whether or not these individuals committed suicide uh, based on the particular individuals of this, of the, of this case and, and you know, who they were and the likelihood of whether or not these particular individuals were ones who would be uh, inclined to take their own lives. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope you will come back and tell us a little bit more about, uh, the first off, the progress in the United States of people um, 
understanding Islam. In in the time, uh, we'll leave this as a final thought. In the time since you've uh, gone public to discuss these things and given lectures, what would you say is the general reception you get when you uh, when you go across the country to give a lecture and you uh, talk about these issues? How are you received? Overwhelmingly positive. Uh, overwhelmingly positive, and uh, especially on the college campuses, I get many many questions afterwards from uh, energetic college students who want to know what can they do to make a difference. Uh, and a lot of them are learning for the first time uh, really uh, what's going on in Guantanamo or what has gone on in Guantanamo. And, and you know, it's, it's been inspiring for me to, to help uh, help shape the, the ideas of, of future leaders. I think it's a very important role that you'll serve there. Well, thank you for joining us, brother, and we hope you'll come back. Great. It's been my pleasure. Um, we'll do it again sometime. All the best to you and your family. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Veracity Radio. 